Well, hello everyone and welcome. Uh, my name is Madush, if I haven't met you and if we haven't said hello. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity Church. Well, as Adam has said, we are beginning a new series in the book of Zephaniah this week. It's a lesser book, lesser known book, but not a lesser book. Um, and it is hidden away somewhere near the end of the Old Testament. You can find it on page 944. So why don't you pick up one of the Bibles in front of you and turn there. Uh, page 944. I will read to you chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, during the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. Lots of fun names there. Now let me orient you a little bit and then I'll explain the significance of verse 1. Now you're probably familiar with King David. He was the king of Israel at its highest point in history. But after the reign of his son Solomon, the kingdom divides. Ten tribes form the northern kingdom called Israel. They reject David's line, and they cease to exist as a nation just a few generations later when they are taken into exile by the Assyrians. Two tribes form the southern kingdom called Judah. They continue to be led by kings from David's line, but they also lead the nation astray. Now, there are some good kings and some bad kings in their history. A good king's like Hezekiah, who gets a thumbs up. Hezekiah removed the high places. He tore down the idols people had been led to worship. But he was followed by his son, Manasseh, who rebuilt those high places and led the people in worshiping false gods, the gods of the nations around them. He set up idols even in the temple in Jerusalem. Manasseh went so far as to burning his own son as an offering to a pagan god. He was absolutely awful. He was so bad that God promised to bring judgment on Judah for all that happened under his watch. Now his grandson is Josiah, who is the king when Zephaniah prophecies. Uh, Josiah is another reforming king that also gets a thumbs up, just like his great-grandfather, Hezekiah. Now, Josiah became the king. He, he's a really interesting character. He became the king when he was just eight years old. At age 16, we're told that he began to seek the Lord. At the age of 20, he began to purge Jerusalem of idolatry. And a few years later, 26, the book of the law was rediscovered. The first five books of the Bible, uh, the people started to read it, and respond to it, and that gave real momentum to Josiah's reforms. It, it, was a, it was a kind of upward trajectory under his reign. And so the question you're left asking at the time of Josiah is, are his reforms going to be enough to set the nation on the right course? Is it going to be enough to make this a faithful nation again? And of course, in the background, you have Manasseh's 50-year reign of wickedness looming. 
after the last reforming king, Hezekiah, the nation got Manasseh, which doesn't leave you with a whole lot of optimism. Is reform, is religious and social and political reform going to be enough to sort Judah out? Now, you may also have noticed in verse 1 that Zephaniah's genealogy is much longer than that of any other prophet. It goes all the way back to guess who? Hezekiah. You see, it turns out that Zephaniah is part of the same royal family. He speaks against the ruling classes of Jerusalem as an insider. So chapter 1, verse 8, he would have personally known the officials and the king's sons that he's talking about. At chapter 1, verse 10, he would have been familiar with the city of Jerusalem, at the fish gate and the new quarter, the market district. These are the roads that he walked. And so Zephaniah takes the law of Moses that's been rediscovered. He, he picks up the Bible, in other words. And under, under God, in the power of God's spirit, he prophetically applies it to the people of Jerusalem and Judah in that day. That's what we have here in the book of Zephaniah. And Zephaniah's entire prophecy is about just one subject. It's nice and easy for us to get our heads around. The day of the Lord. So take a look at chapter 1, verse 7. Be silent before the sovereign Lord, it says, for the day of the Lord is near. Again, chapter 1, verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. You see, for the Old Testament prophets, the day of the Lord was a day when God himself would personally come and enter human history to do something about the world, to set things right. He would come to judge wickedness and defeat his enemies. He would come to purify his people and gather them to himself. And that is what Zephaniah has in his sights through this book. And so as we go through the book, we're just going to be thinking about the day of the Lord. And we're going to look at it in three steps. Uh, today, we'll hear that announcement that the day of the Lord is coming. Next week, we'll see that that day of the Lord is all-encompassing. It covers the entire world. And finally, we will see the result of the day of the Lord, that it is a day that brings transformation and joy. So that's a little bit of an orientation to give us some bearings. Uh, Kezia is going to come up now and read to us uh, the first chapter, and then we will look at that in some more detail. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, during the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. When I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place, the very names of the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host, 
those who bow down and swear by the Lord and who also swear by Molech, those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. Be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those he has invited. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's son and all those clad in foreign clothes. On that day, I will punish all who avoid stepping on the threshold, who fill the temple of their gods with violence and deceit. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will go up from the fish gate, wailing from the new quarter and a loud crash from the hills. Wail, all you who live in the market district. All your merchants will be wiped out. All who trade with silver will be destroyed. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who sit, think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Their wealth will be plundered, their houses demolished. Though they build houses, they will not live in them. Though they plant vineyards, they will not drink the wine. The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. The cry on the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. I will bring such distress on all people that they will grope about like those who are blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole earth will be consumed for he will make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. Gather together, gather yourselves together, you shameful nation, before the decree takes effect and that day passes like windblown chaff before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. Thank you, Kezia. Well, please do keep those uh, Bibles open in front of you. We will look at it as we go. Let's ask God to help us listen and respond rightly to his words. Gracious Father, we give you thanks that you have acted and spoken in history to make yourself known to us. Please, will you work among us now by your spirit so that we hear and are changed. Amen. I am really not a big fan of alarms. They just make me panic. Um, and I'm like, well, what's going on? What do I have to do? Um, but they are a very essential part of my life. My life just does not work that well without them. You see, alarms are there because they get us to do something before it's too late. Our alarm clocks get us out of bed in the morning so that we get to school or to lectures or to work. Your security alarm goes off to warn you of an intruder while you can still do something about it. 
your smoke alarm goes off to warn you that there may be a fire before everything goes up in flames. Alarms are designed to get us to do something before it's too late. They help us to act while there's still time. The book of Zephaniah is like a cosmic alarm clock that is set off by God for the sake of his people. It is a warning for us to take drastic action because his judgment is imminent. It wakes us up to the reality that the day of the Lord is nearly upon us. What will you do? Well, the first point that comes out of chapter 1 is that the day of the Lord is near. God is coming against the whole world. Take a look at verse 2. God says, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. You see, the scope of God's activity is the whole creation. This is language that comes straight out of the flood story from the time of Noah, Genesis chapter 6. There is a righteous God, angry with the wickedness of the world, who has a coming day of judgment. It will be far worse than the flood, it looks like, because even the fish will not escape this time. This is God undoing his creation. Everything, he says, beasts, birds, fish, mankind will be swept away from the face of the earth. God takes sin seriously. He's not going to let it slide. And this isn't a distant prospect, something far away that we don't have to worry about for quite a long time. It's imminent. At chapter 1, verse 14, the great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. God himself will come like a mighty warrior in judgment. He carries on, the cry on the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. That day will be a day of wrath a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities, against the corner towers. It's really sobering, isn't it, to just hear it, bam, in your face. But I also find it reassuring because it means that justice prevails. Those who do evil will be held accountable. Those who harm the innocent, who exploit the vulnerable, who enrich themselves on the suffering of the weak. Friends, we have a God who sees and cares. Power, wealth, Weak judicial systems, they might protect you for a little while, but God himself will come like a mighty warrior. 
There will be no hiding, no money or favors exchanged. Nothing's going to happen under the table. It will be a day of thick darkness when God in all his holiness delivers justice. He will hold the wicked to account. Now notice also that this day is inescapable. Verse 17, God says, I will bring such distress on all people. No one is exempt. That they will grope about like those who are blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Well, here's the reason for judgment. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like dung. That's pretty graphic. But it shows us that the price for sin is their blood, their very lives. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. Not their wealth, not their fortifications. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole earth will be consumed. He will make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. Now, this is not a message that you can somehow do something to stop God's judgment. That you can somehow collectively turn over a new leaf and it's all going to be fine. God will not come. Now, this is a message that judgment is coming. It's inevitable. There is nothing you can do to escape it. But you can prepare for it. Well, that is the announcement. God is coming against the whole world. But perhaps more surprising to the citizens of Jerusalem is the announcement that God is coming against them. Look at verse 4. God says, I will stretch out my hand. So far, so good. That's what God did when he rescued Israel from the Egyptians. He stretched out his hand against Pharaoh. But then comes the bombshell. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. Even God's own people, the people God has set his love upon, will not escape. They too will be held to account for their sin. It turns out that God's people are not that different from the nations around them. Look at what they're condemned for. In verse 5, it is syncretism, mixing the worship of God and the worship of other things. In verse 6, it's apostasy, abandoning God altogether. From the middle of verse 4, I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place, the very names of the idolatrous priests those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host, those who bow down and swear by the Lord and also swear by Moloch. The people have turned to Baal worship. There are idolatrous priests who are leading them rather than stopping them. They're bowing down to the starry hosts. It's like going back to the time before Abraham was called. Abraham was a moon worshiper. 
before God called him from Ur of the Chaldeans. And here are God's people reverting to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. And then there are those who swear by the Lord, but also swear by Molech. They're covering all their bases, swearing by their covenant God, Yahweh, but with a side wager on Molech, the Canaanite God who is bloodthirsty for child sacrifices and cultic rituals. Verse 6, there are those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. These haven't just, uh, they've just thrown in the towel. They've given up. They're not bothering to th go through the motions any longer. They've concluded that God is dead or God is not going to do anything. And they've moved on with life. Now, there may not be much Baal worship going on in Islington, as far as I know. But society is just as complacent, confused about who God is, and therefore how we should live. If people are agnostic. They're neither seeking the Lord nor inquiring of him. Zephaniah is warning, though, is not just for the world, it is for the people of Judah, those like us who gather week by week to worship the Lord. The surprise is that they, too, are complacent. They are proud and compromised. Are we? Now, I doubt that you're tempted to offer your children as sacrifices to Molech. But are you metaphorically swearing by God, but also swearing by something else? Worshipping God, but also worshipping career. Worshipping God, but also our children. Setting them up for worldly success. Worshipping God, but also our comfort. Worshipping God, but also our leisure. Travel. Good food and wine. You name it. Worshipping God, but also. And are some of us just going through the motions? We checked out spiritually, but still present physically? Have you given up fighting sin, concluding that you will get away with it, presuming on God's grace? This is how God will act, verse 12. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent those who think that the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. And see what he says about them? They're, verse 13, their wealth will be plundered, their houses demolished. Though they build houses, they won't live in them. Though they plant vineyards, they won't drink the wine. Now that is covenant language. It, is a, it was a loud siren that is blaring here. This is language straight out of Deuteronomy, the book of the law reminding us of God's covenant commitment, his steadfast love for his people. 
This is what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 6. As the people are about to enter the land, this is what God promises them. He says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you, a land with large flourishing cities that you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you didn't provide, wells that you didn't dig, vineyards and olive groves that you didn't plant. Then, when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you don't forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And what have they done? Exactly that. They have forgotten. They have gone their own way. And so at the end of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 8, among the covenant curses, you have exactly the opposite. You will build a house, but you will not live in it. You will plant a vineyard, but you will not even begin to enjoy its fruit. And that is what Zephaniah is declaring here. It is the time for the covenant curses to fall upon God's people. And one day, the warning for us is that we will also be overtaken. The day of the Lord is near. God will come and he will hold us to account for failing to keep his covenant. Well, that is the announcement. That is the warning. But there is a signpost here in chapter 1. A signpost that God has a purpose in his judgment. He's not just punishing. He's accomplishing something remarkable. I look back at verse 7. Be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those he has invited. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice... I will punish the officials, and so on. See, here is an allusion to God's covenant with Abraham. In judgment, God says that he will offer a sacrifice for sin. The surprise here is that the sacrifice that he's preparing is his people. They are it. They can expect complete destruction. They will die. God is offering them as a sacrifice on the altar. It is a grim and horrifying prospect. If you're a citizen of Jerusalem, you might ask, well, why, why take drastic action if I'm going to die anyway? Because God will accomplish something remarkable through the death of Judah. And because we're familiar with the Bible, we know some of the rest of the story. We know that God is powerful to raise the dead. And so even in the horror of this judgment, there is hope. And that hope comes through clearly at the end in chapter 3. There we will see the remarkable result of Judah's death. For now, realize that Judah will die. That is God's purpose. He is doing something through it. 
Now, chapter 1 is constructed in this way. Uh, judgment on Judah is at the center, and that is framed by God's judgment on the world. It's, it's constructed that way to show us that Judah's problem is a global problem. The problem that God was exposing at the time of the flood, human wickedness, sin in our hearts, is the same problem that the citizens of Jerusalem have. Theirs is a global problem that needs a global solution. Theirs is a heart problem that needs far more than social and religious reform. We've seen the signpost. It needs a sacrifice, verse 7. It needs blood to be poured out, verse 17. God's son, Judah, will die. Now, historically, this did happen. It happened at the time of the Babylonian exile, just a few years after King Josiah fell in battle. But what happens then is not quite on the scale of what is announced here. Judah dies, but the world doesn't unravel. The day of the Lord visits again when Jesus comes into the world. Once more, a son of God, Jesus, dies. Judgment falls. Hope rises. But again, the world is not unraveled. The day of the Lord is still coming. These dress rehearsals in history partially fulfill what the Lord has declared. And they serve to prepare us for that final day. Because we see what has happened. We will be ready for what is yet to come. Well, that is the first point that comes out of this passage from chapter 1. The day of the Lord is near. It is announced. Which leads to our second point. What must the people of Judah do? What must we do? Well, the answer is in chapter 2, verse 3. Seek the Lord. I'll read it from verse 1. Gather together, gather yourselves together, you shameful nation, before the decree takes effect, and that day passes like wind-blown chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. We must respond to the alarm that is sounding. Zephaniah says that we must gather and we must seek. Heed this warning and gather together. Verse 1, gather together in repentance toward God. Gather also has that connotation of gathering yourself before some major exertion. Here it is to heed the warning and recognize that this judgment is inescapable. It is coming. You cannot change your ways and escape it. That is beyond you. It is beyond us. 
But in the day of judgment, where will you hide? What will keep you safe? Then Zephaniah says, seek the Lord, verse 3. That is the very thing that people were not doing in chapter 1, verse 6. It's a call for us to turn to the Lord in humility, to seek shelter under his protection. Only then will he count you righteous. Only then will you be able to do his commands. Only then can you change your behavior. It doesn't work the other way around. And you have to realize how counterintuitive this is, otherwise you will not get it. Uh, the mighty warrior, chapter 1, verse 14, is charging at you, shouting a battle cry. Picture it. The Lord is coming against you to deliver his justice. You are staring death in the face. If you have any common sense, what will you do? Run, exactly. But that would be the wrong response. It is counterintuitive. It is the opposite of what you think. The only place that you will be sheltered, your only safety is found in running toward him. Run to him. And chapter 2, verse 3, perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. Even now, when it's not just society, but the church is filled with complacency and compromise, double-minded worship, turning away from God, hear the alarm bell sounding. It is an opportunity to hear and act before it is too late. Zephaniah is not written for the world. It is written for God's people. It's written for us. He boldly proclaims, he announces that the day of the Lord is nearly upon us. We are two and a half thousand years closer to that decisive day. We should be all the more alert. We have the testimony of the whole Bible, of the New Testament. In Acts chapter 17, the, the Apostle Paul speaks to the Athenians. And this is what he says. He says, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man that he has appointed. He has given us proof of this. He has given proof to everyone by raising him from the dead. The day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. And it is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus that is God's reliable testimony to us to shake us awake, to move us to action. The amazing privilege that we have is that the perhaps of verse 3 is now sure and certain. Turning from sin and trusting in this resurrected judge, the Lord Jesus, 
means that we will be hidden from judgment on that decisive day. Running to Jesus for shelter, trusting him for the forgiveness of our sins is the only way to be hidden when creation comes crashing down. That is the only way to be found righteous, to do God's commands. God in his mercy is warning us. The Babylonian exile, Jesus' first coming, these are dress rehearsals to shake us to action so that we run to Jesus for safety. I'll read verse 3 again. Seek Jesus, all you humble of the land, you who do what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility, so that you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. The alarm clock is ringing. It's ringing right now while there is time to act. Father, help us to hear this warning as your words to us. Shake us up out of our complacency. Alert us to our compromise and lead us to see Jesus, to run to him for shelter. Amen.